Good morning. Got to stand on something rubbery and soft, of course. Good to see you this morning. We're in Ephesians chapter 2 today as we continue uh, our series in the epistle to the Ephesians. We're calling it Earthen Glory because really God's glory is resident in what he's done in Christ and is, in, is doing and seeks to do in the church. But I thought I would do something a bit different this morning. I want to read a translation from Clarence Jordan. Clarence Jordan, just to tell you a little bit about him, Clarence Jordan began the Koinonia farm. He had already been teaching. He had achieved a, a Ph.D. in Greek, specializing in New Testament Greek. And he went on, of course, to translate all of the New Testament. I brought with me the volume on the epistles of Paul. And in these uh, writings, he does a very good job of translation, but he really focuses it on translating it and making it accessible to the people uh, that he was working with. And on the Koinonia farm, anybody was welcome. And so they had kind of a... Um, people worked on the farm to grow their food. They lived on the farm. He ran into difficulties because it didn't matter what color or race you were. And at that time, in the late 60s, early 70s, um, he ran into the Ku Klux Klan and other uh, brands of race supremacy. And as a result, and it, as it ultimately happened, the Ku Klux Klan uh, burned the farm to the ground and they had to start all over, and they did. This particular epistle is not called Ephesians, although it is Ephesians, but he called it Birmingham, with Ephesians in parentheses, because he was writing these letters, like Paul was, to the churches in the Mediterranean. He was writing, translating these letters to people in the Deep South. So, Corinthians was called Atlanta, one Atlanta and two Atlanta, and this is Birmingham. I'm going to begin reading at chapter 2, verse 11. You can follow along in your Bible. It's actually pretty close. So then, always remember that previously you Negroes, who sometimes are even called niggers by thoughtless white church members, were at one time outside the Christian fellowship, denied your rights as fellow believers, and treated as though the gospel didn't apply to you, hopeless and God-forsaken in the eyes of the world. Now, however, because of Christ's supreme sacrifice, you who were once segregated are warmly welcomed into the Christian fellowship. 
He himself is our peace. It was he who integrated us and abolished the segregation patterns which caused so much hostility. He allowed no silly traditions and customs in his fellowship so that in it he might integrate the two into one new body. In this way, he healed the hurt. And by his sacrifice on the cross, he joined together both sides into one body for God. In it, the hostility no longer exists. I'll stop there at the end of verse 16. Now let me read it to you. And we'll read all of 2 through 22, 11 through 22, excuse me. Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in him one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Years ago at my grandmother's house there was a very large one volume. Um, it was the complete poems of Robert Frost. Maybe you've heard of Robert Frost. Robert Frost wrote a poem called Mending Wall. And in the poem, there's an expression that is used by his neighbor that's pretty familiar. Good fences make good neighbors. Have you ever heard that? Good fences make good neighbors. Not in my case. Just a, 
months before coming to grace. And by the way, tonight at our annual meeting, this will be the 17th annual meeting that I've been a part of. Hard to believe. The time really does fly. It's fortunate that you are the pilot. At any rate, it was just before coming here, some weeks, months, we lived on a cul-de-sac. And at the very end of a cul-de-sac, depending on where you are on the dial, your house property has a really odd short shape, kind of a keystone shape in some cases. Our sh the shape of ours went kind of way back into a point. So we had a little forest back there. And one of the trees, uh, the shrubs, bushes that was back there, close to my neighbor's fence, uh, not hidden but prominent, had become kind of special to me because I had been nursing it. It had a tendency to lean over. And uh, I wanted that thing to grow tall and erect. It was already 12 feet. And uh, as I said, it was leaning, so I was redoing the rooting system and I wanted it to grow straight up, so I had tilted it and braced it. And while I was working on it, late one afternoon, early evening, my neighbor spoke to me over the fence. We were on speaking terms, cordial terms. I'll call him Mr. Jones. And Mr. Jones says, John, what are you up to? I said, well, I, you know, I'm trying to revive this Leyland Cypress. I want it to grow tall and straight. And uh, he says, it, it looked kind of <laughs> sickly. It did. And uh, so he wished me luck, and, and he said, uh, I got to tell you, it doesn't look like it's going to make it. And I said to Mr. Jones, uh, I'm giving it all I can give. I want it to prosper. I want it to thrive. Well, it was uh, some days later, not many, but some. And these were the colder months, and the rains came in, and we had a two- or three-day rain, you know, where it starts to puddle and the ground becomes very soggy. And not, with my knowledge, during the wind on a night, my Leyland Cypress blew over against the fence. The next morning when I saw it, I went out and began to wrestle it back into position, and it was difficult. I mean, it was 12 feet tall. It was wet and soggy. I was, what I had on was getting wet and soggy. My feet were slipping in the wet mud. I was trying to do too much with just two hands, getting a brace in place to get it up there. And as I was working, I looked up and I saw that the top had been cut off. And I lowered it back to the fence and I realized it had been cut off at the fence line. I got to tell you, I was not very happy about that. You know, I'd been in ministry 25 years, went to school, postgraduate work, got a PhD in the things of God, you know, New Testament studies. 
I pastored for years, pastored a church for 10 years. Was, but I was ticked. I was fuming. I was talking to myself. And you know what I was saying to myself? I was saying, he knew. He knew. He knew I was trying to save my Cyprus. He knew how much I cared about it. He knew how much it meant to me. He knew how much work I was putting into it. He watched me. I went into the house. I got the yellow pages. Now, for some of you, you don't know what that is, but it's like a directory on your phone, only it's bigger. And I found the numbers for the city, so I called the city. And in fact, you know, what can I do here? What are my rights? Where's the law? Can we arrest this guy? What can I do to hurt him that's legal? I didn't actually say that, but that was where I was headed. Well, there's nothing you can do. The law's on his side. If it's across the fence and on his property, he can lop it off. So I hung up, and I wasn't soothed by that. I walked out the front door. I walked to the end of the block. I walked over to the next street, and I marched all the way to the front of his house. I knocked on his door, and when his wife, Mrs. Jones, came to the door, I said, hello, Mrs. Jones, like that. Is Mr. Jones here? And Mr. Jones made his way to the door, and when he was facing me, I said, Mr. Jones, you are a petty, miserable little man. Shame on you. Shame on you. And then I did an about-face and marched back home. And I felt better. <laughs> Just a little bit. A very little bit. And then I started to cool down. I started to see things a little differently. Because Jesus is in me. In fact, I started to do what Paul says here in verse 11. Remember. I started to remember who I am in Christ, what Christ had done for me. I started to remember all the ways in which he has forgiven me so graciously and generously, how he's never withheld anything from me because of my shortcomings and failings, but has been generous, whether it be grace or mercy on our end, but it's always love, always love, always love, because it's love. It's love that is expressed in what we call grace. It is love that is expressed in what we call mercy. It is love that, that's what we express, it, it, that is expressed in what we call kindness, goodness, selflessness. So, 
I realized as I remembered that people are more important than shrubs. Yeah, let that just sink in a little bit. People are more important than shrubs. The problem is, it isn't about the shrub, it's about me. You see, people are, yes, people are more important than shrubs. And I could name a hundred other things that people are more important than. But it isn't about them. It's about me. People are not more important than me. I'm most important. I'm more important than you. That's what happens when we're selfish. That's what happens when somebody cuts down our Leyland Cypress. It's not the shrub. It's me. And I'm more important. And you know what that's called? Selfishness. And you know what? When I'm selfish, nobody sits on my throne. I'm the king. I'm the ruler. I'm the emperor. God could knock on my throne room and say, it's me. And I would say, not in here, not now. I'm on the throne. But you see, in the Christian life, it's always a matter of the Lord being king and me being his subject because he has bought me, bought me completely when he forgave me a debt I could never repay, a debt I owe to his holiness, a debt I owe to him because he's my creator, he's my God, he's my Lord. And that's a debt I can't pay, and that's a debt that I have to remember because in place of that debt, he has just poured out his love, his grace, his mercy, his goodness, his kindness. He's opened a future to me, a life full of hope and joy. He's opened, in fact, my whole life if I take inventory. You see, it's not just a shrub that I thought was more important than my neighbor, Mr. Jones. It's that I thought I was more important. The law, customs, scruples have a way of keeping us apart. No, not one of you. If I hadn't brought God into the picture, if I hadn't mentioned the name of Jesus, if I just told you a story about my neighbor, Mr. Jones, and what he did to me, not one of you would have reproved me for doing what I did. In fact, after the last surface, a friend came up to me, and she said, did that really happen? I said, all my stories are true down to the word. She was amazed. She thought I had been pretty mild-mannered and controlled in what I did. But it wasn't love. It was the law. It was selfishness, but it wasn't love. You see, what Paul is talking about here is all based on love. 
And what Jesus did, did here, the heart of what Jesus did, is he disassembled rock by rock, brick by brick, plank by plank, bolt by bolt, the wall that divides us from one another. He not only does it say disassembled it, he pulverized it. He destroyed it. It's not capable of being erected again in him. And that wall, it goes right on to say, is the law. The law of commands. And then it says, consisting in or and ordinances, or you could call it legal details, or you could call it judgments. Judgments that we make based on the law. You see, there's a law within us. There are lots of laws out there, but there's a law within us that is constructed by our own pride, our own purposes, and our own desires. And that is a law that Paul is saying has been destroyed in Jesus Christ. And with it, the barrier, the division or division that keeps us apart, that destroys relationships, that causes people to go silent and to shut them out or to justify mistreating them. That's why in this passage, Paul is talking about love more than law and that we should trade the law for love. Trade the law for love. Jesus' love. What his love accomplishes is profound. Remember, we've been, we started at the beginning of Ephesians in verse 3. The very opening of this letter begins with God's decree, God's law. Now just think about that for just a moment. God, before the foundation of the world, in the secret counsel of his own heart, can decree law that cannot be broken. And we're told in those opening verses that that law was that in Christ we should be saved. And how was that law, that decree motivated? We're told right there, in love, in love, in love. So just because in verses 11 through 22, the section we're looking at that we read this morning, the word love isn't prominent, you got to go back to the beginning. What about chapter 2? Remember in chapter 2, it started off, it was so bleak, so dismal, so dark. It was like, we're lost, we're broken, there's no way we can be repaired. And then in verse 4, it says, but God. And what does it say after that? But God in his rich mercy. And where did that rich mercy come from? His love. Rich mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You see, that is still foundational. Everything we're reading, it's not like, well, that was yesterday's news. 
He's building on these things. You should never let go of that love. It's behind everything. And then he gets to verse 11, and what does he say? Therefore. So he says, go back, because whenever you read therefore, it means because of what was just said, this. So because of God's great love and mercy in which, now notice in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, he reconciled, we're told how Jesus reconciled us with God. He wants us to remember that in verse 11. He says, therefore, on the basis of that, going forward in verse 11, here was your situation, and he goes on to talk about reconciliation between one another because of what Jesus has done between us and the Lord. You see, this reconciliation is the basis of this reconciliation. This reconciliation, without this reconciliation, I'm wondering then if this reconciliation has really occurred. They go hand in glove. This reconciliation means this reconciliation. The law will never do that. That's what Paul is saying here. The law will never accomplish that. If it did, if it could, he wouldn't begin as he does, talking about the deep division between Jews and Gentiles. Now, Jews and Gentiles, it's not like the Jews are here and the Gentiles there. Everybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. So, in other words, the whole world is deeply divided. And yet, we as Christians, we know this reconciliation. The world needs to see this reconciliation. And we who know this reconciliation because of this reconciliation, we are called the church. And the church is called the body of Jesus Christ. And the body of Jesus Christ is to be the gospel in the world, lived out in the way we love one another. You will know my disciples by their love, said Jesus. And somehow the world just isn't getting it. And I'm wondering if it's because this reconciliation is not being realized in this reconciliation. Look at uh, this idea of the love of God, and I'm really serious about this. I've, I've thought about this for years. You'll have to do some thinking. God replaces the law with his love, his love, the love that he demonstrated while we were yet sinners. It's said in Ephesians 2. It's said in his letter to the Romans. Chapter 5, verse 8. 
But listen to what he says in his letter to the Romans chapter 13. Let's, let's just take a moment and look at that. And by the way, I'm going to talk about this next week too. So that's, I just thought, you know what? We've got to talk about this two weeks in a row. I've got too much to say. I hope you'll come back. Chapter 13, verses 8, 9, and 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And notice what he adds. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, I've I'm really got a lot next week, so get here early. How do we get this deep in our heart? Jesus, we're told in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, was invited to the house of a Pharisee, a dignified, uh, rather important Pharisee, and he invited important people to hear from and be with Jesus. In the midst of their luncheon, as they were reclining, a woman came in. She was a woman of a pretty notorious reputation. She had with her a vial, a small vial, but in that vial was very expensive perfume, an ointment, a salve almost. And she broke the top of it off and she poured it on Jesus' feet, which were still dusty and dirty, and she began to smear his feet and clean them and rub them. And she began to weep. And the tears fell into the dust and the ointment, and she was rubbing them. And she took her long hair, which was down as she was rubbing, and she began to wipe his feet with her hair. And Simon was standing off to the side, watching this, with a degree of disgust. In fact, he said, if he knew who it was that was anointing and washing his feet, he wouldn't. If he knew, if he was a true teacher, if he was a prophet, he would know who that is, and he wouldn't allow it. A holy man to let that unholy woman touch him pay him a service. 
a tender act of kindness. Jesus picked up on this, and he said to Simon, Simon, there, were, there was a creditor. He had two debts. One was for 50 and one was for 500. One man owed him 50, one man owed him 500. And he said, Simon, the creditor forgave the debts. Which of those whose debts were forgiven would love more? And Simon said, I suppose the one who was forgiven much. And he said, you're right, Simon. He said, this woman here, and he began to describe what she had done for him. And then he pointed out that Simon had not seen to seeing his feet washed or his head anointed. In effect, those who are forgiven much love much. And that becomes an issue for us when it comes to the love of God in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we get that here, but we don't get it here. You see, when it just is here, then sometimes we're all about this reconciliation that's vertical with God, but we aren't involved in reconciliation at this level because the law, the law that's so important, prevents us from loving others as Jesus has loved us. That is what Paul is talking about here. Sometimes we say, well, if another person becomes a Christian, I'll love them. Oh, please, give me a word to say right now. That is so silly. Christians fight with one another like dogs and cats. It's crazy to me. Christians are like Pharisees with their opinions and their ideas and their thoughts. The only thing that can triumph over that law is the love of Jesus Christ. And the realization that God has forgiven us an incalculable debt that we could never pay, a debt we owe to the holiness of God, our Creator, who has loved us even when we are sinners, that we might know His love. His grace, His mercy, and be transformed by that. That is life-changing. That is relationship-changing. Come back, and I'll give you the rest of the story next Sunday. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us. I'll be here along with pastoral staff, elders, their spouses. If you would like to pray this morning with us about something regarding yourself, something the Lord has touched you about, we invite you to come this morning. We're also here to pray with you if you need to pray on behalf of someone. You come if the Lord leads you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your love in Jesus Christ. So great is it. Help us broaden our hearts, expand our minds,
that we might have room to contain all of your goodness, kindness, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness that is ours in your love for us. And that that might become something that captures our imagination and that we might thrive as people of love with one another and those beyond us. We pray for this in Jesus' name. And thank you. Amen.